We're going to talk about communion, the Lord's Supper. Studying this section in 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to cover, oh, I don't know, 5,000 years of redemptive history in 45 minutes. There's going to be a lot of stuff this morning. There'll be a lot of passages, a lot of cross-references that we're going to make mention of. We're going to start all the way back with Abraham and attempt to tie everything together rather quickly to why the Lord's Supper is Urah. I said that for you, Baker, wherever you are. So we're going to cover a lot of material there. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word this morning. God, we're all here and we've come with with different weeks. We've come with uh, different excitements and different pains. And God, we just trust that you're going to meet us here and you're going to use your word to speak right to us, right to our heart. God, as one of my brothers prayed this morning, we just pray, Lord, that this just doesn't go into our ears and, and run away. But God, it, it changes who we are when we really embrace who you are. Would you do that for us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had a week, I heard stories this week, that they make your heart sad. And there are times when you just think, has God fully lost control? Is he watching the Super Bowl and just got all into the commercials and totally forgot me? And, and some of these stories, they, they rip you up. Because I, I think back at the beginning when some of the ancient religions would say that the gods of chaos were always held at bay at the ocean and the gods of order would, would keep them there. And, and every now and then, one of these little wigglies would get his way on land and mess your life up and mess up your fields or mess up your day at work or something like that. And, and sometimes when I see the world, I say, dang, it's broken. You know, you spend so much energy trying to just get by and keep up. And, and sometimes you wonder... Did God just forget me? Did he just forget all about my pains, my struggles? And as I was thinking through that this week, I, I was just reading it, Psalm 103, and I'm going to read a piece of this. And later you can read the whole thing yourself because it really does speak to you. I'm going to read this out of NIV just because it flows a little better. And I'm going to read verses 11 through 18. For as, the high, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Did God forget you? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we were formed. He remembers that we're dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower and then in a field, the wind blows over it and it's gone. And in its place, it's remembered no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is in those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. For those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. That was just comforting to me when I think of this. And I told you we're going to talk about communion, the Lord's Supper. When we see an account of the Lord's Supper, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And that's the title of this message this morning, in remembrance of me. So often we kind of get this, this coin a little flipped over and we say, wow, is it, seem, it seems like God's forgotten me. And so the other question that we should ask is, does God think that we're going to forget him? Just think about that for a minute. Because those of us who, if you've read through the Old Testament, you just see instance after instance after instance of the time when God would call a people and then they'd flourish and they're blessed and they're happy and they, they get a new cell phone and get a new job and they just totally forget where their blessing came from. And, and so God says, oh, I, I want to call them back to myself. And... He does things to help them remember. And you see this cycle all the way through human history. 
So has God forgotten us? We'll have to think about that one. Probably not real hard. But have we forgotten God? Does God think that we could forget him? And part of communion says God knows that we're going to forget him. And so he's he's put these markers in our life. He's put these these events in our life all the way through human history to say, don't forget me. We're going to look at a number of these markers first. We're going to create this huge framework because without it, when we start talking about the Lord's Supper, you're going to have these big chunks of stuff to hang on nothing because the Lord's Supper without the framework of the Old Testament has very little meaning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to step through some of the covenants. We're going to step through some of these things that that God has put up for us, this framework, so that when we talk about the Lord's Supper, we go, oh, oh, I see what Jesus was doing. I see that God had this plan all the way through history so that when he gets to the highlights, when he gets these pinnacle moments, we go, well, yeah. We're ready for it. We're ready to receive these huge truths. So what are some of the ways that that God uses to help us remember him? Now, I'm going to go through three. There's probably 300, uh, but that would take more than 40 minutes. So we're going to start with the covenants. These covenants kind of mark the framework, if you will, of redemptive history in mankind. The Abrahamic covenant... The Palestinian covenant, and these are big words and all the verses are there so we can look at them. The Palestinian covenant is, it's just a rewording of the Mosaic covenant. So Moses, God told Moses what to tell the people. Moses went and told the people. Well, the Palestinian covenant is just kind of a restating of that right before they go into the land. We're going to talk about the Davidic covenant and then the new covenant. And we're going to need all of these to see God's plan. So first off, the Abrahamic covenant. What is it? Way back in Genesis chapter 12, we have God coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick up all your stuff and I want you to move to this land. And I'm going to bless you. In fact, I'm going to bless you and all nations because of you and your obedience. And here's a sign. I want you to... I want you to circumcise all your men. And on the eighth day that these babies are born, and I want them all circumcised. So there's this covenant between you and me, and I'm going to bless all nations because of you. And Abraham said, cool, okay. And he gets his stuff, and he goes. And then a little while longer, these guys end up in Egypt, right? And then Moses delivers them. Covenant number two that we're going to talk about. First off, in the Abrahamic covenant, there are three parts, right? He says, I'm going to give you a land, the promised land. There's going to be a seed from you that I'm going to establish forever and ever. And lastly, everyone is going to be blessed because of you. Okay? This started in Genesis. We are 6,000 years or so removed from this moment. And God started this redemptive plan. Okay? Way back when. Now... Just a note for those of us who don't know this, since we do have the Da Vinci Code and and half the people on earth now think that the Bible was written somewhere around 400 A.D. um, Not true. When Jesus was walking around at zero A.D., he had the exact same Old Testament that we have now. Okay, it's very important to remember that no changes other than, okay, ours is English. And broken up into chapters. But it's no different. The words were canonized. They were set when Jesus was here. So when we say something happened in Genesis and it's working its way through, somebody didn't sit down and go, hmm, I got a plan. Let's make this sound like a really good novel. And let's take this guy and make him a savior and let's play all these. Uh uh. By the time Jesus got here, all of that that was said about him was already hard-coded. Very important to note that. All right, so the Israelites now, God has made them into a nation, just like he promised. They don't have a land yet, 
They're still fumbling around in Egypt in slavery and, and they're not having a good time there. They don't have a land. They're not really even a people. They're a big horde, right? There's a couple million of them and a bunch of farmers and ranchers, and, but they're not really a people. To be a people, you need three things. You need land, you need a law, and you need people. All right, so you need three things to be a real people group. You need a population, you need land, and you need a law. So God then drags them, he delivers them out of Egypt, and right before he moves them into the promised land, he says to them, here's how I want you to live. Will you do it? And the people say, yes. There's the Palestinian covenant. The people said, yes, you move us into the land, we will obey you. Well, we find out they may have been a little hasty, right? Because we see that they didn't really keep the covenant. But God knew that. God knew that. This covenant set up. So they see that they have this need, that they can't reach God's holiness on their own. It just doesn't work. And so th- this is part of the plan. All right, then we get King David. We move through, we've moved through Judges. They totally break his covenant. Over and over and over, God has to deliver them and, and, and take things away so they remember him. And he does all of these things to get the Israelites to remember him. Anybody fallen asleep yet? Big history lesson. It's going to go on for a little longer. Then we get to King David. And King David, his heart blesses God. And then God tells, we, we start the Davidic covenant then. In 2 Samuel 7, God comes to David and says, I am going to st- establish your kingdom forever. Your descendants are going to be enthroned forever and ever and ever. Now, that's beyond time. So we know that that's not going to be Solomon. We know that's not going to be one of King David's kids. It just doesn't mean a long time. In fact, that line doesn't sit in a palace anywhere anymore. So either God's word is wrong, or he meant something a little bit beyond a human king sitting in a throne. That's the Davidic covenant. It's unconditional. God came to David and said, from your line, I'm going to bring the Messiah, my son, the redeemer of the world, Emmanuel. I'm going to come incarnate and live with people. And that incarnate line, the flesh line, is going to come through you. Davidic covenant. Then later on, we get through we get through Second Samuel, we get through First Kings. It's a little rough in First Kings. We get to Second Kings. And if you read if you want a very depressing story, read Second Kings. Because what happens in 2 Kings is you have all these ungodly people that have totally forgotten their God. All right, not all of them. Every now and then there's one that comes up and says, we need to get our, get our lives back in order and turn back to God. But we find at the end of 2 Kings, the people are moved off totally into exile. Their land is taken away, and God moves them off into exile. But during that time, we have a whole bunch of prophets. So... If you, if you look at the structure of the Bible, we have all this history, but then we have all these prophets, and the prophets in the history actually overlap each other. When Jeremiah starts prophesying, he's prophesying during this time of the second kings. And if you look at Daniel, Daniel is actually in, in uh, exile when he's, when he's prophesying. So you see that these two overlap each other. Okay? Well, in Jeremiah 31, God says, okay, tell them this. I am going to establish a new covenant. Just let that word sink into your head for a minute. Because they couldn't keep the old covenant. He knew that. I'm going to establish a new one. I'm going to write this one directly on their hearts. No longer are they going to have to sit and listen. And I'm going to speak to these people directly. I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit. I'm going to make a new covenant with them. I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. Jeremiah 31. This is the first mention of the new covenant. Now remember, this is not written in four or five hundred A.D. when somebody said, let's make a good story out of this. This is canonized before Jesus showed up. Okay, very important to remember that. 
The new covenant. So now we have this, we have this covenant structure. God has put meticulously, methodically into place this structure to redeem mankind. And in the end, no one can go, oh, we had this great idea. We established a king and we did these things so that man would, uh-uh. Man failed. Man failed to remember God. But God didn't fail to remember man. He had this incredible framework just set up waiting for us to fall into it. And one of the reasons I just love how this all flows together is when you sit back and look at all the things God has done for me. He has, he has orchestrated 6,000 years of history so that one day I could go, oh, really? Jesus died to redeem, to, to give me that forgiveness so that I can have hope? You're kidding. And then I can just go back and, and, and look and see all this validation of what God has done. And I get excited. I get excited to see what God's done. What's another way? I have to throw this one in here because this is very important. When we look at what God has done to help people remember, suffering is a very important piece. Now, I have to first disclaimer, not all suffering is here so that you remember God. We live in a fallen world. You read Ecclesiastes. And though Ecclesiastes kind of leads toward uh, vanity, the one thing I see in Ecclesiastes when I read it is the world's broke. It doesn't matter how you look at it. You need a savior. There is no way to get out of this world unbroken. Right. It's just not working. So not all suffering is here so that you remember God. You can be remembering God fine and still be going through suffering. But we see Time after time after time in the Old Testament, where in in Amos 4, this is one of my favorite passages because it it rubs me a little, but at the same time I get to see the heart of God here. In Amos it says, I gave you empty bellies. I took rain away from your field so you could barely even live, just barely enough food, and you didn't even have enough water to drink. Some towns would have something to drink and you wouldn't. You'd go to that town and they wouldn't have enough for you, so they'd turn you away. And your life was awful. That's what he says. And I did it. And then he tells him why. And he says, and even after doing all that, you still wouldn't come back to me. I need to take these, the, this fluff away from your life. So you call to me and say, God, I, I'm sorry. I repent. I want that hope. I want you back in my life. And so he does those things. He causes those things to happen so that you'll turn back to him. And you see that all the way. I'm studying through the, the minor prophets. And you see that over and over and over and over in the minor prophets. God saying, I've got to remove these things because they're distracting you. You've left me. So I'm going to take those away so you come back and then I can bless you. And you'll be ready to be blessed. Right? Because when you have all that stuff, you're putting all your hope in that stuff. And if I were to bless you more... You wouldn't even really enjoy it. You would enjoy it in some fleshly level. We see this in, in the newspapers lately uh, about some, some uh, celebrities, right? That everything that we think would bring us happiness, they already have. They've got fame, power, money. They don't have to do anything but play and spend their money. That is the definition of happiness. But yet they can only enjoy it at a, a fleshly kind of level. You can only enjoy that humanly. And so God says, wait. Wait, I want you to be able to enjoy that at a much higher level, like the way I created you to enjoy it. And you're not ready for that. And so he can pull those things away and you come to grips with who God is, just like, and and then give it back to you. And when he gives it back to you, you're now ready to just be so blessed beyond what you could have been before. And so God uses that suffering to help us remember him. So you see that in Judges, and we're not going to go into that, and you see it in Amos that, that I just spoke about. All right, and and then another one, last one, because this one is really going to put uh, all the framework together. The events. If you look in the book of Leviticus, uh, if you really need something to read because, let's see, why would you read Leviticus? (laughs) Well, you're going to find out that without it, there's a lot of things you just won't get. But as you start reading Leviticus, it kind of reads like a a tech manual. (laughs) That's really what it is, right? God is meticulous. When you read Leviticus, the one characteristic that you get from God is he is exacting. 
God is a God of order and he is exacting. Here are some things that he put out there for the Israelites so that they would remember him. Offerings. There are a number of offerings listed there. The sacrifices, burnt offerings. Now, when I say God is meticulous, if you read through Leviticus, here's some of the things you get. For the sin offering, you must have a lamb or a goat. It's got to be one year old. It's got to look like this. It can't have blemish. Oh, and when you sacrifice it, you got to sacrifice it on the left side of the altar. Why? I mean, it is, it's really that exact all the way through. And oh, and by the way, this person has to be doing it. And when they do it, they have to wash this way, wear these clothes, walk in this way, not say anything to anybody till they get there. And it's very methodical about how God wants this to happen. And you have to ask yourself, if you read that, why? Why is it so important that I skip in on one foot to do a burnt offering? And God says, you don't really need to question that because you're not smart enough to know the answer. You can't handle the truth. You don't have the capacity to understand what I'm going to do 4,000 years from now. Because if I told you that, you wouldn't believe me anyway. And then you'd stroll and say, it doesn't really matter. Oh, and by the way, when you do it and it doesn't really matter, you're not going to come back out. Because, yeah, I'm serious about this. Your redemption, my glory, the redemption of all mankind hinges, so to speak, on you doing what I tell you to do. So do it right. And then they don't. And God says, okay, well, you're not listening off to exile. When you come back, do me a favor and do it the way I told you. You have to do it God's way. Now, This has a tendency to offend people. And I have a friend that says, I will never worship a God that makes me do these things just so he gets glory. Now, being a believer and loving God, I go, you've got to be kidding me. Now, I have a different view of God than this person does. I think of God as like the creator of the universe, the one who actually holds life in the balance and gives us life. And so thinking that way about God is it's kind of like this. Could you imagine you tell your child, don't run into the street? And you turn around and say, who do you think you are? Could you imagine your kid saying that? Okay, some of your kids have said that. I'm, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I better go there just for a minute. Okay, there's a little confession time we're going to have to have here. <laughs> but but that, that idea that God actually, he's not telling us, he's not saying you've got to do it my way because I don't have anything better to do. I like to see you little puppets run around in the world and, and look silly. It's not what God's saying. God's saying, I'm redeeming you. I'm wooing you back to myself. You have, you've crossed the line and gone away from me and I'm doing everything to woo. It's my desire that nobody will perish. I'm wooing you back and if you don't do it my way, you're going to miss it. There is only one name by which you're saved. One way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through Christ. There's one way and you have to be exacting and if you're not... You're all going to miss it. One of the festivals that we're going to focus on is Passover. It's an interesting time of the year to just have happened to hit 1 Corinthians 11. But as we go through here, we're going to spend some time working through Passover and how that one festival gets fulfilled in the Lord's Supper. So the big question right now should be, so what? Okay, we just had a 5,000-year history lesson. And you're telling me that this has something to do with me in the year 2007. And the first answer is yes. One of our core values is that we are to encounter God in His Word. If we read the Word because we want to get better at the system of Christianity, when we come into church, we want to be able to use the big words. We want to be able to... And we've missed it, just like we were praying this morning, that it it all stayed here and it's not making the changes. When we're in the Word, we're looking for the heart of God. We're looking for the character of God. Because God is converting, He's changing us, He's transforming us into His likeness. And so as we're reading the Word of God, we're looking for those characteristics of God that say, "Mm, I don't line up with that. 
and then we say, God, change me. Make me your character. Show me that. And every time we go before the word, we say, God, show me myself. Expose these places where I'm not like you. And then we're reading even in Leviticus. And we see, wow, God, your plan, your, ah, uh, and it brings up worship. And it doesn't stop here because we're looking for the character of God. So three things that I have there. One, God is meticulous about his glory. We've got to put that first. What God does is not just to redeem mankind. God doesn't exist because we're so special that he needs to get us back to heaven. God exists because of God. God's glory is what fills the universe. We are a second thought. As special as we are, and we are worthy, God loves us, but we're not priority one. God's glory is priority one, and he's meticulous about preserving his glory. No one can say that they orchestrated 6,000 years of history, no matter what kind of control freak you are. But God can. He can say, I put this plan in place just for you. Secondly, he's methodical about restoring us to himself. We already kind of said that. And then lastly... He's masterful about executing this plan. One of my greatest joys is knowing that God can't be frustrated. I can be frustrated. I can tell my kid, go do this, and he can look at me and have great intentions and then not do it, and my whole will is frustrated. Right? In the end, I end up doing whatever. Or there's so many things that can frustrate my will. I desire to get from here to here, and I can't get there because my car didn't work. Something that simple can totally stop what I wanted to do. But God's will and God's plan... And God's desire cannot and will not be frustrated. And so when you see this framework through history of what God has done to redeem you and help you to remember him, you know that that plan has brought salvation right to your doorstep. Now you can say no. You can say, eh, I don't buy it. You can do that. But that doesn't change that God did everything perfectly in history to lay this package of salvation at your feet and say choose call choose me all right so let's go through and read this passage now first corinthians 11 17 through 22 so paul now he's talking to the corinthian church and we're giving him more instructions starting in verse 17 but in giving this instruction i do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. All right, this is a little different tone than how he started chapter 11. With, uh, I praise you for holding fast to all my traditions. And now remember, Paul came to Corinth and taught them all of this. So he's now, re this is the refresher course, okay? Just a couple of things to point out that he mentioned in this one section before we actually get to the Lord's Supper part. He started off in 17. Churches that meet together, and we're going to say this just on a side note, can actually cause more harm than good. Now just let that sink in for a minute. There are a number of churches that when they get together, they're causing more harm than they are good. And we can come up with a, probably ten different reasons that is. And this really should drive us all to our knees throughout the week, asking God to protect our body. That we don't fall into that category of when we come together, we're just here to rub each other's backs and feel real good about it. And, and then walk away just... 
as sick as when we came in. Yeah, we're here to, to love each other and it feels really good to be with believers and that. But what's God's purpose in us? And why do we come together? And are we worshiping God? All these questions that just come out of this one little passage. When he says you come together and it's actually for worse, not for better. That kind of shocks me a little bit. into thinking, I, I trust that's not us. And I know when we get together and pray for the service throughout the week, that's one of the things we continually pray is God protect us. Protect your word, protect our body from just this. Show us your will. Show us where you're connecting into the, into the community and into your kingdom so that we're, we're in step with you. Next, divisions can identify those that are approved. We're just going to flow over that. In their church, there are those that are heretics and those that are not. And when there's an obvious division and the division is dealt with, then you definitely know the difference between their two teachings. Now, the person has to choose, am I going to follow this this philosopher from one of the temples, or am I going to follow this person who is approved by the apostles? And so those heresies, those factions, it's actually a paradox that the division is necessary to actually point to those who have been approved by God to do his service. And so at one time, we don't want divisions in the church, but at the other time, those kind of divisions have to occur so that those that are approved can be moved or separated out and everybody sees them. It's an issue of contrast. Right? They contrast against the false teachers. All right, and then Paul sets up the problem. The problem is they're doing the exact same thing that we see happened in the Old Testament. God said... Here's the sacrament, big word. Here's the practice. Here's what I want you to do. When you're remembering me in the Lord's Supper, here's how you do it. Paul, teach him that. So Paul goes and he teaches him that, and the Corinthian church goes, what? And they do it a totally different way. Instead of having the priest go in and offer the sacrifices in the Old Testament, one time Saul just decided to say, you know what? I ain't got time to wait for them. I'll just do it. It's fine. I'm just going to do it my own way. Yeah, I know all the Jesus stuff, but I think I can get to God my own way. I don't need all that. You know, I've been in life a long time, and and I really see how life and religion and all that works. I think I got it pegged. I'm a good enough guy. God's got to let me in. I'm going to do it my way. It's the same thing that's happened all the way through history. They decided to do it their way. And Paul says, stop it. You're not eating the Lord's Supper. You're not practicing this thing that I told you to remember God with, to remember Christ. You're doing this other thing. That's the problem. Let's read on. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All right, let's start off with 23, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Paul had been there. Paul had been to Corinth. Now, note that Corinthians was written before the gospel accounts. Okay? Even though we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians in order in the Bible, because the history books come first in the New Testament, Corinthians chronologically was written before the gospel accounts. So in 1 Corinthians 11, this is the first biblical account of the Lord's Supper. It's the first chronological account in the Bible of the Lord's Supper. Okay? And Paul says, look, I didn't read this from the Gospels because the Gospels weren't even written yet. I didn't pick this up from some teacher somewhere. Jesus revealed this to me. So we see in Galatians 1, 12, where Paul tells 
the Galatians, look, what I've learned, the gospel that I've learned didn't come from man. No man taught me this. Christ himself revealed this to me. So Paul got revelation from Christ about how all this thing works. So he's telling the Corinthians the same thing. I received this from God. And this is a signature of Paul. When he says, look, what's about to come here? I need you to know unequivocally that this is not from me. God wants you to do this. So he says, for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. It was not my opinion. This came straight from the God who created the universe. 23b, second part of 23. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now let's first start on the word the night or the phrase the night. Now we are in Passover. So if we read through the gospel accounts, what you see is Passover was coming. Jesus sent his disciples to the city and say, find this guy, find this room, get us ready to celebrate the Passover. But we notice in every account, there is not one minute detail of Passover anywhere. Why? All the focus of this celebration is in establishing the new covenant. We have closed up Passover in a tight little ball because it's fulfilled. Christ is the Passover. Why did they have to do it so exactly? Because God was preparing their hearts for real deliverance. You were delivered. We celebrate Passover because you were physically delivered from Egypt, physically delivered from the soldiers, But I want you to remember this event throughout the next 3,000 years or whatever it is. Because one day there's going to be spiritual deliverance. A fullness of deliverance. You get to go to the promised land physically and have rest. But I'm going to show you the real Sabbath. I'm going to show you the real rest. Because it's going to be fulfilled in this Jesus guy. This God incarnate. He's going to complete the Sabbath. He's going to complete the Passover. And you're going to have the fullness of all these. So when I tell you to take heed on the Sabbath, and when I tell you to do the the Passover just like I tell you to do it, it's because I want your minds and your hearts ready so when Jesus comes on the scene, you see it. And that that gets me all kind of excited. Because when I get to look back, I see how all the pieces get to fit together. And I see that God meticulously put this structure in place so that I'm ready to see Christ. But yet so many people miss it. All right, math people, geeks, enjoy this part. The night happens to be exactly to the day the night prophesied in Daniel 9. Whoa. Daniel 9, verse 25, goes through and says, it's going to be this long until the chosen one is cut off. And when you do all the... I didn't do this. When you do all the lunar calendar manipulations and all that, the Passover, when Jesus said, here is my body, the night is the exact amount of time prophesied hundreds of years earlier in Daniel. Did I mention that the Old Testament was canonized and finished before Jesus got on the scene? Very important. If you take the view that some monk somewhere in 400 AD sat down and wrote this really cool story about the salvation of man, you totally miss this. God is meticulous about bringing you back to himself. You want exacting? You want perfect execution? Try prophesying something 690 years earlier, 490 years, 430, whatever that turns out to be, years earlier, and have it happen on the exact day. How many times do they want to kill Jesus before he actually got to this moment? Over and over and over. Could they? No. Why? Because Jesus controlled his own destiny. Because he said, I've got to make this exact. I'm going to go when the will of the Father says it's time to go. Because I don't want there to be even a slight miss. It's going to be exacting. On the night, the exact day. Now here's an interesting contrasting point. 
the night that Jesus establishes the new covenant has got to be the worst day the man ever had. He knows what's about to come. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of physical pain. But he also knows that when he takes on the sin of the world, there's going to be a separation. There's going to be this thing that happens where him and God are going to, there's going to be this pain. And he knows it's coming. We see that slightly after this, he goes up and prays and he's praying just intensely in tears and blood. And This is a bad day. And on the worst day, the worst night of his life, he establishes this new covenant for us. He fulfills redemption and tells us here it is. He took bread. Verse 24. And after he had given thanks, and when he had given thanks. Now, those of you who have been in churches, uh, you've probably heard the word Eucharist. Right? We hear this said all the time. The word Eucharist simply means given thanks. That's it. And so oftentimes you hear that you know, we, we do the Eucharist for communion. It comes from this right here. After he had given thanks, that word means Eucharist. Okay? That's trivia for you when you're playing Bible trivia. The body, my body is a tiny little phrase with a huge amount of controversy. And we're just not going to go here. We don't have enough time to to spend through all this. And so I leave this up for your study. But a couple of things to note. What does it mean to be my body? Does he mean that big word transubstantiation simply means that Jesus actually becomes the bread. His body is inside the bread. Literally, when you eat it, it changes into Jesus in your mouth. Okay? And consubstantiation means Jesus holds hand with the bread and jumps in your mouth. But both of these mean he is, Jesus is present in the bread physically. Now, where do you get this from? In John 6, Jesus tells the people this. He feeds them all. They come back hungry. And he says, listen, unless you eat my body and drink my flesh, you have no part of me. That's what he told them. And so then we remove a little bit and we go, oh. So we actually have to eat his body and drink his blood. And therefore, how are we going to pull that off? Oh, communion. That's how we'll do it. Because when we eat, he says, this is my body. And therefore, if I eat his body, then I have a part of him. Other than that poor thief on the cross who didn't get to do that. But Jesus still told him he was going to be in heaven. Not sure exactly how that worked out. But that's how these things tie together. Is that in order to have salvation, you actually have to partake of the physical body of Christ. That's where this comes from. But what we don't do is read the context of that. Because not four sentences later, Jesus says, Hello, this is spiritual. This isn't fleshly. It's not physical. I'm talking spiritual things here. So he finishes off in John 6 to tell us that. That he's not talking about physical things. So stop with the whole putting them all together. But this is a serious teaching, though, that you'll probably hear. And that's how the two tie together. But Jesus was speaking spiritually, not physically. And so when he says, do this in remembrance of me, he's meaning just that. Remember me. Okay? So that's the part about the body. And I, I would, if that interests you or you've, been, you've had some other teaching, uh, you can come talk to me or uh, study that on your own a little. And then lastly, this body is for you. And again, this, I think it's up there. These have got to be two of the best words in Scripture for us believers. We've just walked through 5,000 years of history, this huge plan that's been established by God and meticulously carried out. And he says, New Covenant believers, for those of you who don't believe yet, I've done all of this for you. And if you're the only person left, I do it for you. Because I'm calling you back. I want you to be part of me. I'm doing this for you. Verse 25. Here's where you have to know about Passover. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper. Now, those of you who are masters of Passover, you're going to understand what that means. 
During the Passover, there's a very specific way things happen. There are four cups. The first two cups happen, and then there's dinner. It's the bread and the sacrificial lamb gets eaten. And then there's the third cup. Well, when Paul says that after supper he took the cup, it means he's drinking from the third cup. Now, just like everything else, there's meaning to this third cup. The third cup, when we talk about Passover, is the cup of redemption. It's when you fill the third cup and the kids run to the front door and open the door. And they open the door so if Elijah comes, Elijah can get in. And you say, who? So what? What's Elijah got to do with redemption? Well, we go back to the Old Testament and we see that Elijah is the one who's going to usher in the Messiah. And so when they come to Jesus and say, but somebody says Elijah was supposed to come. And Jesus says, ah, Elijah came. That's John the Baptist. He came ushering in the Messiah. Already been here. The door's wide open. Elijah came through. He ushered in the Messiah. And now we can drink from the third cup. The redemption cup. So he doesn't just pick the first cup or the second cup because we don't know anything about that. God meticulously put this thing in order so that when he takes that third cup and everybody sees the third cup and says, here's the new covenant in your blood. Redemption is fulfilled for you. They knew exactly what I'm getting goosebumps. They knew exactly what he meant. The old covenant is fulfilled. My Messiah just showed up. And my redemption is complete. They knew exactly what that meant. And so when he says, do this in remembrance of me. He's not saying, just walk up and go, yep, Jesus died on the cross. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, search, remember this whole thing of what I have done for you. This plan, this whole redemptive process that I've put in place. God incarnate came to earth specifically to give you the forgiveness that you've always wanted, even if you don't even know it. When you get up in the morning and you're just like, this world is just broken. What do you mean, God? There's no God. How can the world be like this? If they're, and you're frustrated. Your flesh is frustrated. Your spirit's frustrated. Everything is just frustrated because the world's busted. And God says, remember, you have forgotten me and I've done all of these things to show you the hope that you can have. I have redeemed you and it's complete The new covenant. I'm about to run out of time. So the question here is, what was the old covenant? And I'll let you study that also. I think some things are there. One of the most fantastic passages is Hebrews chapter 9 that talks about this old covenant and the new covenant and how they all tie together. So I'll let you read that. And then also when he says, this is the covenant in my blood. I got to jump back to Exodus 24 again, just for a moment. Because after the people said, yes, Moses. We will do what you tell us to do. Everything God has told us what to do, we'll do it. And what did Moses do? He took a hyssop, he took a sacrificial blood, and he sprinkled it all over the people. As it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That covenant had to be sealed in blood. Why did God make it that way? Ask him when you get there. But that's how he did it, and he just tells you, do it my way. That's what God did. And so what Jesus is doing here is repeating exactly what happened in Exodus 11. Here's the new covenant, and I'm the mediator. It's my blood that's going to seal this new covenant. Your redemption is my responsibility. And it's done forever. You see in Hebrews 9 where it says he died once for all. Once for all. We don't have to keep sacrificing anymore. Every time we, we sin, we don't got to go nail Jesus back up on the cross. It's done. It's all finished. Your redemption has been bought. Now, we're going to jump right to the end here, the last slide. Why do we have to be so exact again? The Old Testament, make the sacrifice on the left side of the altar, standing on your right foot and and wearing these clothes with this other thing. He was very specific about what you had to do in the Old Testament to get through these offerings and sacrifices. And now we have it again. We have this sacrament called the Lord's Supper. And he says, do it Exactly as I've told you. 
Why? Because once again, we have, we have a practice that has meaning in the future. And God doesn't want us to miss this either. He's preparing us for the time when the fullness of the Lord's Supper is going to come about. If you read this in the gospel accounts, you hear Jesus saying, I'm not going to do this again until I do it in its fullness in the kingdom of God. And so he's leading us up saying, get ready. And, and when you do this, you're preparing your mind for when we do this in glory. So he's preparing the church and preparing the body to be his bride where there's going to be this huge banquet and the fullness of the Lord's Supper is going to be realized because we're not going to realize it all here. doesn't matter how good you are when you walk down that aisle to get your elements for communion. You have sin. Sorry. But you can't fully realize the fullness of communion, the fullness of the Lord's Supper until you actually do it with him in glory. And he's preparing us for that. And so when we do it, next week we're going to talk about those who do it in an unworthy manner versus those who do it in a worthy manner. What does it mean to do communion, to do the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? How do we prepare ourselves? What does it look like? That's next week. Let's pray. God, I just see your sovereignty everywhere here. And God, I would pray that that we all walk out of here with just this sense that we can trust you so much. That in every aspect you are, you've not forgotten us. God, you have so not forgotten us. You've just structured the universe so that, so that you're going to call us back to yourself. You love us that much. God, would you integrate that, God, into each of our hearts that, that we can rely on you. And those of us who who struggle with that faith and understanding all that, God, would you just help our unbelief? God, anybody that doesn't know you here this morning, Lord, I just pray, God, that you would you'd speak to them through this and, and show them how great and how deep you desire them to be with you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.